Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. The way we have understood veterans and their experiences of war in the context of American culture and society has changed significantly over time. And veterans have often been a lightning rod for larger cultural anxiety. It's about everything from gender norms to mental health. In this episode, we'll hear and honor their stories. So many of these men and women came home and got got active around their status as veterans. They, they thought, uh, I'm not going to sit for crappy treatment at the VA, and I'm not going to, if, if they were on the political left, I'm not going to sit for a continued war in Vietnam. Um, and so one of the striking things about the men and women I have met is that they were really willing to uh, take one of the fundamental lessons of, the, of military service, which is that you are responsible for everybody, right? Um, that you are, in a funny way, you own this country. You have bled for it. It's yours. Um, and they make that real in their lives. I've been really struck by the, the degree to which these men and women come home and serve. They keep serving. There's a lot of surgery going on in the Civil War just out in the battlefield, which again might seem pretty crazy to us because when we think surgery, you think like super sterile environment in a hospital. And this would have been something that would have been really messy and just like happening on the fly. Out in the field, there's also a lot of disease. So actually, until antibiotics in World War II, more people die during war from illness Mm. than anything else. The first thing that happens is you find these resources within yourself to do what you need to do to take care of people. And then I think, I think the shutting down is a little more gradual. One of the things I did early on, big, and it was not learned this was a huge mistake. I, um, I had a, a guy with a head injury. I remembered his wallet that was in his belongings, and I was kind of settling him in, and I opened up his wallet, and I looked at the picture, and there's his wedding picture. And it just, like, now you're looking at this guy, and you know, <laughs> probably not going to make it. After that, you just start, you don't look at anything. Today we're talking with Philip F. Napoli. Phil is an associate professor of 20th century social and public history at Brooklyn College. He was also the co-curator of a 2007 exhibition that we put up here at Brooklyn Historical Society called In Their Own Voice, Brooklyn's Vietnam Veterans. Phil, we're so glad you could join us well, today. thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. So, Phil, talk to us a little bit about the ways historians have, have talked about and studied veterans. The veteran's body is deeply politicized. Um, he can be used, he, she, can be used in any way that you might want. So there are some on the um, American political right who want to argue that Vietnam veterans are heroes, overlooked and uh, much dismissed. 
Then there are others who want to argue that veterans are damaged goods in one way or another. And then there's a third category of historians that want us to put that divide aside, if possible, and begin to look at veterans as political actors, people who have taken up this idea that veterans are not just to be defined by the war experience itself, but rather they are a politically active, engaged community within uh, American society that has a role to play beyond the story of the war precisely itself. Um, so veterans have been a political football, and historians have paid attention to this, I think, since the, since the founding of the country. So it started out that way, and uh, what do veterans deserve? Um, and it, it's been a significant historiographical issue uh, uh, really ever since. So in the American Revolution era, <laughs> era of the American Revolution and afterward, that was one of the central debates. After the American Civil War, right, we've got two contending different groups. One group doesn't get access to the American uh, benefits system. And the other one, the Civil War veteran, there isn't much for them anyway, and there won't be until uh, close to the end of the 19th century. There are, however, some state-run veterans' homes. They're always state-run. Um, they're not federal. We don't really get a federal system of benefits for veterans until after World War I. Can you talk a little bit about how um, race and then even gender has shaped how people understand what um, veterans have come to expect or how we have, have, have thought of them? The story of American women military service and their and their recollection is a is is one that's on my mind a lot. Um, we don't tend to remember. We don't tend to think about women in uniform. Um, we imagine this as a male preserve, and it's not. Um, and it never has been. At least in part because we don't think of women as a significant component of the veterans community. Women have traditionally received incredibly crappy care at the Veterans Administration. There are some African Americans who fight on the revolutionary side during the war. There are not many, actually more on the British side because the British offered freedom. Um, and when the British lost, African Americans who had fought for the British left um, with British troops to Nova Scotia and elsewhere. Um, after the American Civil War, uh, of, of course, well, during the Civil War, uh, African Americans fought with the idea that they would um, uh, be given freedom on the, at the conclusion of the war um, and receive nothing. Moving on to uh, the, the story of the American War in France during World War I, um, that was a very clear expectation that uh, and, and African American leaders were uh, upfront with themselves and with American leaders that this was that they were going to end lynching. We're going to have to, uh, you know, provide African Americans with the, the with the basic elements of American citizenship. Um, which, would be, which had been missing and continues to be missing in some important ways. Issues of race, of course, <laughs> are embedded in the stories of the Japanese units that served in the American forces during the Second World War. But of course, those units, like the uni African-American units who served in France with, uh, in, in the First World War, they, they served with enormous distinction, um, uh, only to, to come here and be, uh, generally speaking, ignored and forgotten um, and, until uh, quite a bit later. One of the things that's most fascinating to me about thinking about African-American veterans in the 19th and the 20th century is the way that that role is deployed as really savvy political leverage mm -hmm. to gain more, mm -hmm. to gain civil rights after the fact. And so I think there's, if you know, that, that sort of seizing and agency of that, mm -hmm. and I think really shows how powerful the idea of combat 
for a, a country is, but also how gendered that is, because, you know, if we're talking about the Civil War or World War II, it's largely, you know, it's really only men who have the opportunity to take to take that and to seize that, you know. Uh, and it's, it, it is worth pointing out that historians have really identified that it's very often uh, men who have served in uniform, not necessarily exclusively in combat, uh, in uniform African-American men who went back to the American South and were leaders in the American Civil Rights Movement in advance of Martin Luther King and the 1950s that we all recognize. In other words, there was an under, kind of underground, what's the right word, way to put it, sort of current of, of, of civil rights activity, uh, very often led by men who had served in uniform during the Second World War. So uh, it, the, the American military inst- as an institution taught men skills that they came back and employed of leadership, um, of, 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 of social consciousness. Brooklyn and, and the Jackie Robinson story, of course, comes right to mind. Of course, he served in the American military. He wasn't going to put up with that when he was in the military, and he didn't put up with that stuff when he was here, right? Um, the, and those two things, I think, are, are indeed connected in his experience and I think in many men and women's experiences. Well, when would you say that people began to see veterans as this kind of sacrosanct, certainly political category? The post-Vietnam effort on, led by Vietnam veterans, right? I mean, it really was them who insisted that the American public recognize and separate the war from the warrior. This was not an easy thing for American public, the American public to do, especially in the aftermath of the revelations of My Lai and the many war crimes that we actually heard about and saw on film um, uh, in one way or another. Uh, American Vietnam veterans had to, had to tell the public, knock it off. That effort began in the late 70s and into the 1980s. Um, and I think it, it remains a powerful thread in American, I don't know how to put it, cultural discourse, right? But it, but it wasn't always there, right? American uh, Revolutionary War veterans were considered an obnoxiously pe- a petitioning class of individuals who seemed to always want money. Similarly, with the American Civil War veterans, you put up things like the Grand Army Plaza. It's a beautiful monument. But, but that papers over the reality that there was a significant unemployment problem for Civil War veterans here in New York City, coupled, by the way, with a significant heroin addiction problem among Civil War veterans, right? Because how do you treat painful wound? Well, the only thing available is opium, right? Uh, so that uh, alcohol, uh, uh, substance abuse, unemployment, these things uh, are, they, they came in the, in the wake of the great American Civil War. So we look at the Grand Army Plaza and we have one vision of it, but we've forgotten some other truth about um, the, the, the Civil War experience. Um, similarly, after uh, World War I, they come marching down Fifth Avenue or up Fifth Avenue in some cases. Um, and uh, we have a grand celebration of their return as victorious um, American soldiers, and then they largely go away until they show up again on the Capitol's doorstep in 1932 and say, you owe us, you promised. World War II is different. It's a vast, much vastly larger population, 16, American, 16 million American men and women put on the uniform. Um, and so the, the iconic photograph of the kiss in, Central, in uh, Times Square also papers over um, the vast range of American veterans' experiences. The, the Vietnam War lasts so long. Two and a half million men go through the combat zone. It's a defeat. Um, it generates its own mythos. I, I wonder, you know, like I'm thinking, so after World War II, you have like this kind of 1950s period of optimism in mm-hmm. American society. 
Um, but in the 1970s, it's the complete opposite, right? And I wonder how that shape, like how people kind of, how that connects with how people see veterans, you know, because like veterans come back after after Vietnam to a collapsing America, essentially. I mean, and certainly like the war on poverty has been, has ended, you know, has been eclipsed. Yeah. And infrastructure is falling apart. And so, you know, it's kind of like the, a very different America that people are coming back to. And the, the country is less generous right um in terms of thinking and it's, I, I just wonder like that kind of frames how and, and we, we you know do you see what well, i'm saying I do, and what, like, what's interesting is like I, I was thinking about the exact same thing phil while you were talking but i was thinking about, about it in terms of economics and consumption yeah i was thinking that the vietnam the sort of the 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 sort of the stereotype World War post World War II period is a is a white mm-hmm. experience and it's a GI Bill experience right. and it's about the yeah. ability it's about creating the ability to participate fully in con- in a consumer in yeah. a consumption yeah. based yeah. culture yeah. right yeah. Yeah. and that when you when and as you say when you come back in the mid seventies you are coming back to a ravaged economy right. and I think and then and so then the contributions or lack of contributions of veterans at that point are framed in a completely different way in a way that is very much about despair and so that I, that comparison to me seems fascinating I, yeah. I think you're dead on right and I want to add one element to this in 1966 uh, Lyndon Johnson guts the GI Bill he does it very deliberately and consciously says we're going to replace all those programs anyway. We we have all that stuff in right. place, and it's, we're going right. to call it the the Great Society. Yeah, so we don't yeah. need a GI Bill. They'll use this, right? So the the GI Bill is gutted. So when these guys come home in 71, 72, 73, they're looking around and saying, "Where's my benefits? Why yeah. don't I have the benefits my uncle had or my father had?" Well, Johnson took them away. Let's be honest about that. And and so it's compounded. The absence of federal benefits are compounded by this uh, co- this this decaying economy and right, right. the jobs that Americans American men and women thought they were going to get get when they came home have moved to Long Island right i mean they've gone out of if they're here at all right. so the despair is 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 manifested in the sleeping bags on the streets yeah. All, all of these things, the, the economics, the culture, the, uh, even the, literally the, the benefits that have been uh, passed by Congress have shaped, shaped that experience in a very profound way. So that it, gives, it gives rise to that sense of, you know, did I just lose four years of my life for nothing? Yeah. You know? um, four so. years and whatever else. And, whatever and else, it's like right. four years of like the prime. Yes. Exactly right? so. That's right. Yeah. Exactly yeah. so. That's right. So the skills they had are no longer relevant, right? I mean, it's the moment when the when the computer revolution takes off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, actually, and speaking about it, and this frame to me really does reinforce this this very particular. I mean, it's national, but there it's it's heightened in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It's the tie between veterans and the deindustrialization de- and the transformation of so the urban here's, economy. So one example that didn't didn't show up in your show, but Tony Wallace, African American man, his father was a was a steel worker in Williamsburg, right? And so Tony goes to goes to college. He goes to um, Kingsborough for a couple of years and thinks he's going to, you know, uh, come back and either go back to work or, uh, or maybe get a – the job his dad has go- had, had is gone. It is mm-hmm. – they've shut the steel the, – the foundry down, and there's, it's not here as a concrete example of exactly what you're describing. What for you have been the most important takeaways of doing this work on Vietnam veterans? I resist the, the notion that – we all we need to recognize veterans as all the same thing. That I don't believe they are. Um, experience is single, singular, and subjective, um, and that subjectivity, oral history privileges. Um, that's why I do it. Um, it. It insists that your experience is not the same as the other person's experience, and so that 
generalizations are dangerous, I think. What I deal with is not the history of 1968. What I'm interested in, in oral history, is in the meaning of 1968 today. So that I talked to a veteran who served at Quezon, a big battle in northern Vietnam in 1968. His memory of 68 is probably pretty good, being a young person at that time. And I could use his memories for historical reconstructive purposes. I could try to figure out, you know, did he move from here to there at that particular time. But generally speaking, documents are better than somebody's memory. What memory is really good at is identifying how that episode changed his life. That's what it's really good at, at doing, is figuring out what the subjective meaning he brought forward in time is. You've interviewed Vietnam veterans from all over New York. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really interested in if there is a particular kind of Brooklyn experience, and I wonder if you've noticed that in, in, th in talking to Brooklynites. Well, there's a couple things to say. One is that we can't tell how many men or women went to Vietnam from Brooklyn. We don't know. The Department of Defense didn't keep their statistics in that way. The, the zip code was relatively new, and the DOD did not record zip code. So all we get is New York, New York. We do know um, that uh, Brooklyn has always been one of the most heavily recruited locations in the country, uh, so we can take a good guess that a big chunk of the men and women who went were from Vietnam. Um, but Brooklyn has always been an, an uh, incredibly diverse place. The essence of the Brooklyn experience is that diversity. Right? It is the sense that you know, the white Irish Catholic from Bay Ridge also served at the same time as the young man from, from um, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant or elsewhere, uh, a Puerto Rican kid from the, from the, from the projects, um, to the, the young woman who lived in Flatbush and moved out to Long Island. Um, that diversity is what characterizes the borough best, and I think that's what everybody brings um, uh, to, this, to this story. They, were, they had a wide range of experiences before they arrived in the military. They were not confronting Jews or African Americans or Puerto Ricans for the very first time. This was part of their everyday experience. So in some ways, it took the wider world and, and brought, <laughs> brought them to it. So many of these men and women came home and got, got active around their status as veterans. They, they thought, uh, I'm not going to sit for crappy treatment at the VA, and I'm not going to, if they were on the political left, I'm not going to sit for a continued war in Vietnam. Um, and so one of the striking things about the men and women I have met is that they were really willing to uh, take one of the fundamental lessons of, the, of military service, which is that you are responsible for everybody. Right? Um, that you are, in a funny way, you own this country. You have bled for it. It's yours. Um, and they make that real in their lives. I've been really struck by the, the degree to which these men and women come home and serve. They keep serving. For our Into the Archives segment, we're joined today by our colleague Aaron Webker. Aaron is the assistant curator on a new public history project we're taking on here at BHS called SICK, 400 Years of Illness and Health in Brooklyn. She's also a professor of history at Queens College. Aaron, we're so excited to have you here today to talk about one of the sort of most 
visceral and macabre artifacts, I think, in all of Brooklyn Historical Society's artifact collection. So will you tell us today about this artifact? Yeah, sure. So um, we're looking at a surgeon's kit today. And um, basically, it's a big wooden box. And inside has sort of velvety lining and it has all these different surgeons tools uh, inside sort of sitting in like an instrument would sit inside of a case Um, and these tools look probably pretty scary to a modern viewer so um, a lot of saws and big knives and um, yeah so looks very different from what we would think of today when we think of a surgeon and kind of the very delicate you know, precise work that goes into surgery. It almost makes me think a little bit of that show, The Nick, <laughs> and the kind of gruesome surgeries yeah. oh, that yeah, they perform yeah, 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 there. Yeah. Um, so this is an 1860s case, right? Yeah. So if you can give us a little bit of the context for how, you know, <laughs> how did this come about with the, the use of these tools and, and what, uh, what necessitated the use of these tools in the theater of war? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of surgery going on in the Civil War just out in the battlefield, which again might seem pretty crazy to us because when we think surgery, you think like super sterile environment in a hospital. And this would have been something that would have been really messy and just like happening on the fly. Out in the field, there's also a lot of disease. So actually, until antibiotics in World War II, more people die during war from illness Mm. than anything else. So that could be things like malaria or yellow fever, which are rampant during the war. But also infection is like a huge thing. They don't, they haven't, um, they don't understand germ theory yet. And so, you know, they don't understand sanitation in the same way. There's this, this convergence of two things that are going on during the Civil War. And it's that there are new technologies of killing, right? Um, The way, you know, the difference between the kinds of guns that people were Mm -hmm. firing during the Civil War versus the Revolutionary War muskets, which like you were lucky if you hit somebody, is completely (laughs) different, right? Right. But medically, we hadn't caught up to that kind of technological innovation in terms of the way that we cared for people, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So that's another reason that there's so much surgery going on, basically, is that we have these new weapons They have new types of um, muskets that, like, fire more accurately and um, uh, fire. They go farther. They also have this new type of bullet that um, is made of sort of like a soft lead. And so when it hits your body, it flattens, but it also smashes up everything underneath it. So really destroys, like, about two to three inches of, like, bone or muscle or whatever's in there. And also brings in dirt and debris and clothing and stuff like that. So it means, you know, crazy infection and much more destruction and things like that. Um, Part of those new bullets were also hollow. And so sometimes they would put um, like exploding things in there. And so that would be even crazier. Like the bullet hits you, you know, is in there a couple of inches and then explodes. Let's just go back to the, the place where we started, which is the surgeon's kit. So these saws, these knives, I'm assuming would largely be used for amputation, right? Right. Yeah. Amputations, like, mm, I think like 75% of the surgeries they're doing in the Civil War, amputations. <laughs> wow. And again, part of it is because there is so much destruction and so many people that are injured, they can't take the time to do, to really like splint things or right. like really, there's not time for care. Right. 
where are we with anesthesia at this point? Yeah, well, so that's another reason that they're also doing a lot of amputations is because they do have ether. And so you can knock people out. So that at least is good. You know, it's not as if you're, you know, completely conscious when somebody is amputating a limb. But actually, ether had been um, sort of they made a better version of ether prior to the Civil War, and that was made by a Brooklynite, by Squibb. And so much of the ether that would have been going to the battlefield was being made in yeah. Brooklyn. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The Civil War kind of, uh, I, I wonder if it changes the way, um, in, in a real, because so many people were involved and so many casualties, does it change the way people think about war and the experience of going to war? Yeah. I mean, one of the other interesting things about the Civil War is, photography has been recently invented mm. and so one thing is you see soldier uh, lots of soldiers just take photographs of themselves before they leave so that their family like has something to remember mm. them by but also you have this guy Matthew Brady who basically goes out to battlefields and takes photographs of the battlefields after a big battle has happened and so the public actually is seeing uh, photographs of like tons of dead bodies on the battlefield. So there is actually a greater, you know, the public is more exposed to sort of bodies and that kind of destruction. Who who would have used this these tools, the surgeon's kit? I mean, you know, the profession of the medical profession is still doesn't really get professionalized until the 20th century, mm-hmm. right? So who gets qualified to carry a box of, of knives and a saw <laughs> around with yeah. them? Who's issuing saws <laughs> to people? Well, I mean, there are already um, medical schools, and there are, you know, states are starting to require physicians to have to go to medical school or have some sort of training. But, of course, you wouldn't be learning, like, battlefield medicine, like, in regular medical school. And the American army at the outset of the Civil War was tiny. It was an elite bunch of officers who were all trained at just a few schools. So the idea that there even would be this like roster of well-trained doctor soldiers is just unimaginable. There were barely yeah. any generals, right? And so this is something like so many things that the United States government has to just kind of figure out as yeah. it's going along. One of the interesting things about this case, I think, is actually that it's not U.S. Army issued. So we in our provenance research have done made some assumptions, right? That this might have been might have been used by somebody early on in the war, but it it, it hasn't been shown to be one of the army issued kits that surgeons would have gotten later in the war when the army was a lot more developed than it was. To like wake up from being administered ether and realize that you know part of your body is missing. Um, you know, we didn't have the language uh, it, in at that time. There wasn't certainly in the archives the language of what we now call PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, what what is happening to the veterans or to the, the people in the war? Mm-hmm. Um, what, how how are they understanding or explaining the experience of going through this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the Civil War is actually a really interesting moment for this because it's one of the first times that physicians are actually studying these reactions of soldiers. But you're right, we back then they're not thinking it of it at all the same way we think about it today. So they were recognizing that soldiers, you know, coming out of combat or, you know, maybe that had an amputation or whatever, are having these negative reactions, anxiousness, depression, whatever. 
But back then, they really would have thought about these as being either character flaws, like something wrong with your character that meant you were sort of not up to the task, um, like, quote, feeble-willed or something like that, you know, that you're kind of weak, um, or physical. So um, weirdly, they were also studying, like, people who had been in railroad accidents who also had what we would call today PTSD. But their way of understanding it was like, oh, the accident itself caused some physical trauma inside to the nervous system. And that's what leads to, you know, sleeplessness or depression or anxiety. You know, we I think we think about, you know, we live in a a society today that is a therapeutic society. Um, There is an increasingly, though I'm sure not enough, acknowledgement and dialogue around PTSD, um, which is often framed as sort of an invisible thing right um it's something that ha- feels like it happens internally it's mm-hmm. you know cognitively but amputees are very public and they're very visible and i wonder was there dialogue in the post-war years whether among veterans themselves or more broadly in american society about the about the meaning of these what probably like, you know 100,000 people coming home mm-hmm. um missing arms and legs yeah i mean They definitely became a symbol for a lot of people. I mean, the symbol could mean a lot of different things. You know, for some people, especially the veterans themselves, there's issues of like masculinity wrapped up in that because they're not able to fight anymore. Also, they might not be able to provide for their family and be a breadwinner. So that was definitely something that I think the soldiers grappled with. But also a lot of them felt like it showed their patriotism, right, and that they had made such a huge sacrifice. So some um, veterans that lost limbs actually chose not to wear uh, prosthetic limbs because they wanted to, like, wear that as, like, a badge of honor. So I think there were a lot of different meanings for people. In this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to Joan Fury. Joan Fury was one of the many people interviewed by Phil Napoli, the historian we featured in our first segment, whose voice um, was part of the Brooklyn Historical Society 2007 exhibition, In Our Own Words, Portraits of Brooklyn's Vietnam Veterans. Oral history is important not only for the intellectual value that it it brings by giving us new information and new insights, but there's also a social value of oral history, and that is in valuing voices of people who are marginalized, who are sometimes silenced and rendered invisible. And that's why I think it's really important to listen to the actual voices of veterans, and that's something that oral history does. And with that, we are going to play um, a selection of clips from this oral history with Joan Fury. My name is Joan Fury. I grew up in uh, the Flatbush section of Brooklyn until we moved out to Long Island in the late 50s. I graduated from nursing school in 1967, and I joined the Army Nurse Corps in July of 1968. I was sent to Vietnam, volunteered for duty in Vietnam, and was stationed at the 71st Evacuation Hospital in uh, Pleiku, which was in the Central Highlands. I was there for the entire year of 1969, and I worked as a staff nurse in the post-op intensive care unit. You know, you have this room full of patients. You have people who've had 
multiple amputations, people who've had chest wounds and they have chest tubes and people on respirators and you have people who had really severe head injuries. I mean, you just looked at this unit and like, like it was something out of your worst possible nightmare. And you were going to have to take care of these. And most of them were young men between the ages of 17 and 24. You know, it's your peer group. I just really, really found it incredibly overwhelming. Within two weeks, you're dealing with it all. <laughs> I mean, somehow or other, and I, and I always say to people, I, say, I think one of the most amazing things is that about human beings <laughs> is that, you know, you're faced with this. And you, it wasn't like you could say, hi, I'm out of here. <laughs> you were there. And uh, not only were you there, but you, you couldn't leaving was not an option. The first thing that happens is you find these resources within yourself to do what you need to do to take care of people. And then I think, I think the shutting down is a little more gradual. One of the things I did early on, big, and it was I learned this was a huge mistake. I, um, I had a, a guy with a head injury. I remembered his wallet it was in his belongings, and I was kind of settling him in. And I opened up his wallet, and I looked at this picture, and there's his wedding picture. And it just like now you're looking at this guy, and you know he's <laughs> probably not going to make it. After that, you just start. You don't look at anything. You don't do it consciously. I mean, you just say, well, I ain't going to do that again. And I think you do start to, to shut down emotionally. You know, you would have periods where sometimes people would snap, and you would, it happened to me, it happened to a lot of people, and, and people would take care of each other. But I always, in one of our mass casualty situations, we had patients coming in, and we were very busy. This is just an example of, of the stress kind of thing. And I had a patient that came in. He had a big field dressing on his head, on the back of his head. And he had uh, an expected tag on him. If you had an expected tag, nobody was going to do anything. That just meant you were, you were going to die. And so what they would do, would they put him in our unit, and you just waited till they died, and then you prepare them. For and so I have all this stuff going on around me in this mass casualty situation, and I decided they had made a mistake with this guy, that he's, you know, going to make it. And so I uh, decided that I was going to change the dressing on his head. <laughs> and I take off the dressing, and not to be gross, but half of his head was in my hands. And I just very calmly put, <laughs> put a new dressing on, went to give him some blood. Well, you don't give blood to an expected patient because it's a resource you can't waste, you know, in those kind of situations. And uh, one of the male nurses I work with was a dear friend of mine, um, came over and said, Joan, you, you can't do that. And, you know, and it was like, I said, yeah, I'm good. He needs the blood. He's losing blood. And, and it was just this very quiet confrontation with, he's, he's going to die. You have to step away. You have to walk away. You've got all these other patients. You're the only nurse. You've got to start taking care of them.
And I can remember one of the things I said when I went over after Jude took me away and I washed my hands. And I remember distinctly saying to him, I feel like Lady Macbeth. I'm never going to get the blood of Vietnam off my hands. As usual, we have some great events coming up in the next few weeks here at Brooklyn Historical Society. Julie, tell me what you're interested in checking out. Well, if our listeners who are local are going away for Thanksgiving, everyone should hurry back because the event that I'm excited about takes place at Brooklyn Historical Society on Monday, November 28th. Um, at 6.30 p.m. And it is a book talk um, where we are welcoming historians Stephen Hahn and Eric Foner, as well as publisher Wendy Wolf, to talk about Hahn's new book, A Nation Without Borders, The United States and Its World in an Age of Civil Wars, 1830 to 1910. I think it's going to be a really wonderful twist on the idea of a book talk, which usually is just one author talking about its book, because here we have a publisher, we have an author, and we have also the editor um, of the series that this book is in. Eric Foner is the editor of the this series called The Penguin History of the United States, of which this book is the third volume. And as a historian, there's been a lot of talk about this book and the way that it's changing, the way that we understand and periodize um, the 19th century. And honestly, these two historians are just really fascinating people, a treasure and absolutely worth listening to for an hour and a half. So come over to Brooklyn Historical Society on Monday the 28th. Doors open at 6. The event is at 6.30. It's $10 general admission and $5 if you are a member of BHS or Greenwood Cemetery. The event that I'm interested in in checking out is titled Stop and Frisk, an in-depth look at a contentious policing tactic. And this is Wednesday, December 14th at 6.30 p.m., where criminologist and criminal justice expert Michael White will be here to delve into his and Henry Fradella's new book, Stop and Frisk, the Use and Abuse of a Controversial Policing Tactic. This is the first authoritative history of of this tactic and if anyone's you know certainly been following the news this has been an ongoing debate about what stop and frisk has been able to accomplish has not been able to accomplish how people have used it how police have deployed it in various communities so i think this is a really important topic to explore and again that is wednesday december 14th at 6:30 p.m. it is $10 for the general admission $5 for members of Brooklyn Historical Society and Greenwood Cemetery so both for both of these events you should probably think about becoming a member of BHS absolutely it pays for itself within like one or two events before we sign off on this episode we want to share some thoughts that we have as historians and hosts of this podcast on the recent presidential election. Thinking about the work that historians do, there's so much that has transpired in the last 16 months of this electoral season uh, and how it's been reported. And, you know, historians rely heavily on the public record and other kinds of records and archival documents and newspapers especially to provide the kind of framework. Um, You know, they say journalists write the first draft of history. And um, looking at this first draft, I think it's going to be needing a lot of revision because there was so much normalizing uh, done of ideas which were just extremely 
uh, dangerous to our republic, that undermined the principles of our Constitution, that challenged the ideals that we uphold as a nation. And I think historians of the future will have the challenge of kind of um, sifting through the records, the archival records of this period. This election has really made us think deeply about our jobs as historians here at VHS and about about uh, what, what we want to do with this podcast. And I think that you'll see two through lines that are really reflected in this election that we'll continue to come back to over and over in the podcast. And that is looking at the incredibly deep roots of inequality and injustice in this country. And recognizing, really taking a hard look in the mirror and recognizing that those are part of the foundation of our country. But then there's another thing that we will always come back to that is deeply American, and that is protest. And that is the, the, the willingness of Americans to put their lives on the line for the things that they believe in and to do what they need to to affect change. And that's the thing that I take from our last episode featuring Shirley Chisholm. And so with that, I think we're going to continue to think about what the contours of inequality are and what the meanings and powers of protest are going forward. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guests, Phil Napoli and Aaron Webker. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. <laughs>